0: Mic check, one, two...
1: Off. Amen. <coughs> Good afternoon, everyone, uh, and thank you for taking the time out of your schedules to join us uh, uh, this afternoon. It's a delight to now welcome uh, s- some old friends uh, up here on stage, but also old friends uh, in the audience. And it's a pleasure to uh, host this event. I'm going to turn it over very quickly to uh, a good friend whose career and mine have crossed multiple times in multiple places in DC and in in Africa, Uh, uh, Dante Paradiso, uh, because it's really his story and those uh, uh, whose stories he tells in uh, this wonderful uh, new book that has just been released, uh, The Embassy, and we're delighted to have Dante here, as well as Ambassador John Blaney, who is the Chief of Mission. the US ambassador in Liberia from 2002 to 2005, uh, and was critically in, uh, especially the year 2003 when, uh, when the story comes down. Uh, like, you know, Today with all the issues going uh, about in our presidential campaign in, uh, in Africa as a whole, the crises in North Africa, the various internal political crises within various African nations, from Somalia uh, in the east, all the way west through uh, the Sahel belt uh, uh, to the Atlantic. It's it, uh, difficult to remember the, the period when, uh, just a little over a decade ago, when our big challenge was focused on a country which, which we've had, a uh, as Americans, a very long history. Not always uh, the, the most pleasant history, but I think it's uh, but certainly, a very long history, and uh, how diplomacy really came through. And I, this is really the story of this book, and I want to tur- uh, I'll turn it over to Dante to tell that story. But uh, how diplomacy played a decisive role, and in many respects, if it didn't perfect everything that went before, it certainly redeemed a lot of it, and uh, perhaps lessons about diplomacy uh, in the world of the 21st century, which we now live, as well as. Uh, the role that uh, uh, an individual U.S. Embassy and diplomacy can play in the midst of a crisis and so there I think lessons well beyond the immediate case even though many of us have a direct uh, connection or affinity to Liberia for various and sundry ways it's one of those odd things that one never seeks out but uh, ends up uh, with that Uh, so without further ado uh, Welcome everyone here to the Atlantic Council. I want to turn things over to Dante Pardiso, a member of the uh, US Foreign Service. uh, uh, Served in a number of uh, posts uh, throughout Africa, uh, not just Liberia, but uh, also Ethiopia, TDY, and with the Combined Joint Task Force, Horn of Africa, uh, as well as in the AF Bureau back at the State Department, and then, most recent uh, Africa posting was uh, DCM and uh, Chargé for an extended period in uh, Libreville. So uh, and a, so a good friend to Dante, it's all yours.
2: Okay, well, thank you, Peter, and thank you to the a- Atlantic Council for hosting us. Um, this story uh, has been a long time in the making, and uh, so I uh, appreciate the opportunity to, to, to tell it. Uh, I should say that as a current State Department officer, anything I say, uh, the views are my own and not those of the United States government or the United States Department of State. Um, I'm gonna uh, take you guys back uh, to uh, 2003. So the book uh, really covers a, a narrow period of time. Uh, and uh, what I'm gonna do is tell you a little bit about the story. and. Uh, and then we'll turn it over to uh, Ambassador Blaney to provide a little bit of context, a little bit of uh, a strategic overlay to the story, and then hopefully open it up and have a, a good discussion. Um, book covers a, a very narrow period of time, uh, August to, to, uh, or, or June to August 2003 in Liberia, which uh, was an inflection point for the country. Uh, it was either gonna dissolve and uh, devolve into factional fighting uh, as it had in, in the 90s, but with uh, no, no real clear forward on governance. No real clear, uh, there was no peace agreement in place. Uh, Taylor, Charles Taylor's government was disintegrating, and two rebel armies had attacked. Uh, a peace process had started in Accra, but on the opening day, uh, an un- indictment had been unsealed uh, that accused uh, Charles Taylor of, of war crimes. So you have the head of state out of the country, and uh, uh, two rebel armies uh, moving in on the capital, and the rump state left behind uh, was uh, problematic to say the least. Uh, they, you know, Taylor's uh, administration had been widely uh, branded as the uh, epicenter for instability uh, in West Africa. So uh, it was very fraught times, very tense times, and uh, the immediate question became. Uh, would Taylor be rendered immediately to the court in Accra, or would he uh, return? Uh, Chris Dada here was uh, charge uh, at the time because the ambassador was at the uh, peace talks. Uh, and the embassy itself, the U.S. Embassy, was really the last uh, diplomatic platform available. There was a small uh, European commission uh, entity there. Uh, the U.N. was in the process of evacuating and drawing down staff. and. Uh, You had a really tough call uh, right away uh, with the fighters uh, on the streets. Uh, They were executing people, uh, and uh, nobody really knew where things were going to go if Taylor would come back. Well, Taylor came back, uh, the Ghanaians flew him back because uh, they felt it wouldn't be uh, in their national interest to uh, arrest a sitting head of state uh, within their region. So they uh, returned Taylor, uh, but it didn't calm things down. Uh, the Lourdes rebel group uh, attacked the city. Uh, They attacked the the capital, and they came in uh, much further and faster than everybody uh, expected. Uh, And they found themselves uh, halfway to the executive mansion. And uh, it immediately put a lot of pressure on uh, the embassy to essentially uh, evacuate uh, folks, which we did in concert with the French, because there was a French military attaché on the ground. Uh, but then really, the pressure came, maybe we should close. Maybe it's time to shutter the embassy entirely uh, and uh, pull out. And the uh, thinking uh, from some quarters in Washington uh, was very clearly, look, uh, we don't have a lot of strategic in int- interests in Africa. We had just and, in, in Liberia, we had just uh, uh, overthrown Saddam, so all of the focus was on the Iraq war uh, with some residual focus on Afghanistan. Uh, I think they really clearly wanted to keep it that way. Uh, you know, Chris Dada, uh, our chargé at the time, got a call saying, "You know, think about uh, leaving and 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 closing the embassy." He said, "Look, I'm not going to close John's embassy. John being the ambassador." So Maybe. the ambassador uh, the ambassador gets back, uh, and the the rebels had attacked and uh, and. Uh, when he got back on the ground, they had sort of pulled back. I think the rebels had come further than they thought they would. Uh, they actually, by one account, they started with, like, 80 guys. So it sort of showed you that uh, it's almost a raiding party. Uh, they came in. They picked up people along the way because it was very easy. You just hand rifles to kids along the way, and they come along with you. But over the next, uh, over the next three months, uh, the rebels attacked two more times, uh, and the pressure really mounted to close the embassy. And it was uh, coming from, um, uh, you know, Office of Secretary of Defense. And uh, the ambassador said, well, look, I I think we can do something about this. I think there's a way forward here. Uh, We need to give the peace process a chance. Uh, There had been a ceasefire, but nobody was respecting the ceasefire. Uh, And so it was really a question of uh, holding the course until you get a solution, and the solution had to be one a peacekeeping force of some force of some form. There needed to be an intervention force to come in because the part the uh, the fighters were on top of each other, and uh, without some sort of intervention force, uh, it was just going to be a perpetual you know factional fighting again, just as it had been in the in the worst case of the nineties um, and the uh, the second thing was you needed at some point a comprehensive peace agreement, and the challenge was the sequencing of this. Uh, the last piece of it was Charles Taylor had to go. So the president, President Bush, was traveling to Africa in early July, and he was trying to focus uh, the world's attention on uh, PEPFAR, uh, HIV-AIDS relief, other critical programs that uh, the White House was, was uh, putting forward in Africa. Uh, and. The question of the moment, of course, was, if you're gonna be in Africa, what are you going to do about Liberia? Now, this is a country that the United States uh, uh, helped found, uh, and so uh, it's really one of the countries that has the closest historical ties with the United States and Africa. And here you are uh, in Africa, uh, touring around, and what are you gonna do? And uh, immediately before he had left, he had stood up and said, Charles Taylor has to go. And it was an interesting statement given that uh, we had just deposed Saddam Hussein. And so at the time in 2003, uh, you have to go back to that time period and realize what the world was looking at when they looked at a U.S. statement uh, at that time, uh, particularly a, a, a statement that implies military action. As a result of his statement, uh, it got a lot of folks in Taylor's administration thinking about what their next steps might be, because they saw the writing on the wall. Uh, but from our perspective, we really didn't know on the ground what could be or not coming, because really, to that point, it had it seemed to be intense pressure from Washington to actually pull out. And so it wasn't really clear that any of this was gonna form up. Uh, What did happen was uh, folks like uh, Michael Arietti and other folks uh, that that were here were working the back end of the policy to try to put uh, an intervention force together. Uh, In global terms, this intervention force came together with uh, lightning speed. When you think of uh, things we've tried to do as an international community in uh, Sudan, uh, even in Bosnia, these things, have take, they take a long time. And you can understand it, right, because you're asking other countries to put their lives at risk in a country that's in chaos. And you need a mandate, and you need a clear way forward. And none of that had, had really come together on the Liberian side. Nonetheless, they were able to get uh, President Obasanjo stepped up uh, in Nigeria and said, I'm gonna put troops on the ground, but he had some conditions. We need them to be resourced. We need uh, uh, you know, robust uh, U.S. support. And, of course, he he wanted Charles Taylor to go. Uh, So the pieces started to come together, uh, but the rebels were occupying half the city. At the end of the day, uh, on their third attack, they came in, they had half the city occupied. Uh, The international community had completely drawn down, uh, and it was uh, pretty precarious times. The other problem was that the intervention force that was supposed to come in was uh, Nigerian-led Uh, with uh, a Ghanaian uh, deputy force commander, and those were the initial troops that were going to come in. And they had had a history in Liberia, Uh, and that history, uh, by by even the best accounts, was a mixed history. And uh, when they had intervened, when ECOWAS had intervened in the 90s, they had been drawn into the conflict and and by many accounts were essentially another party to the conflict. And so from the the Taylor government perspective, it was perhaps to give them breathing room. And there was always the thought that you could reconstitute and live to fight another day if you've got separation from the rebels. From the rebel side, they felt that the the force would come in and protect uh, the Taylor regime. So these dynamics were playing out, and the Liberian people were under heavy pressure. Uh, At the time, uh, there were 3 million people in Liberia, of which 1.5 million were living either as refugees or as internally displaced people. All of the displaced camps had, over the couple months before this moment in the conflict, collapsed into the center of Monrovia. And at the time, Monrovia had no running water, no electricity, and really no resources to help all of these people. It was already a city uh, under pressure. And now you suddenly had 200,000 additional people Uh, in the streets, and given that the front lines ran through the middle of the city, rebels occupying Bushrod Island and the peninsula that rises up to Bushrod Island, uh, which is where the government forces uh, were holed up, that's where all the people were. So people were getting mortared uh, daily, and and a friend of mine said, you know, uh, she had a nice line. She said, um, it was tragic because, really, there was nowhere in Monrovia that a mortar could land and not hit somebody. And so people were getting killed uh, in, in horrible ways uh, for a long period of time. So, what's the solution? What, what can you do? And the answer was uh, if Taylor was, was willing to step down, and he certainly had the pressure from the international community with the president's statement and enlightened the president of Iraq uh, to really think about whether uh, we were going to come in and, and, and actually physically depose him. He didn't know. And those in his government didn't know. Uh, but the, the answer was, you have to get the interpositional force in, and then hopefully the peace process can, can take traction. But in order that, for that to happen, you had to build trust. And how did you build the trust? The ambassador went through the front lines, uh, and, and our team went through the front lines on three separate occasions to meet with the rebels and to say, look, if the intervention force comes, it's not to protect Charles Taylor. Charles Taylor is still... Uh, we'll, we'll leave this, uh, oh, okay. this cover up. Well, you know what I will do is I will um, just give you a, a sense of... Uh, let me see how this... Probably I'll turn it off. I don't know if this is... Uh, okay, there we go. Uh, just to give you one sense of the division. We don't do a lot of slides here, but to show you what we're dealing with is this is Monrovia. The rebels held Bushrod Island here. The embassy, the executive mansion are all on this peninsula. The population centers were all in here. And there were two bridges here, and this is the front lines. And so everything, rebel mortars were coming this way, Charles Taylor's gunfire was coming that way. And uh, you had to cross these bridges to get to the rebels. And what the ambassador did and what we did was negotiate with both sides to allow, to go through the front lines and, and, and broker uh, an agreement by which the rebels would voluntarily leave the city. Uh, once Charles Taylor left, the rebels were effectively in control of Monrovia. They had won. Uh, Taylor's forces really relied on him for command and control, so it was a very, very tense and difficult situation. Um, but at the end of the day, Despite the risks, uh, it worked, it worked. The rebels pulled out. We were able to deploy U.S. troops in support of echo mill troops. And you had with one battalion, uh, they were able to control a 40-mile stretch. One battalion, so 600 initial troops, they were able to control a 40-mile stretch from uh, Robertsfield International Air- Airport uh, all the way up through Bushrod Island. And they uh, just stationed some folks at the port, and they stationed some folks. They did presence patrols around town. And uh, at that moment, uh, the calls went out from Monrovia and said, you guys got to get a a peace agreement in place, because this can't hold forever. Uh, And then the comprehensive peace agreement came about four days later on August 18th. So the story that... uh, I tell in the book uh, that we are telling to you today is really the story of what it takes um, from the inside of an embassy perspective, but also the NGOs, uh, the the, uh, Liberian people themselves, uh, and uh, journalists, what it takes to uh, shine a light on a situation like this, keep the world's attention, and allow the diplomacy to move forward so that you can actually end a conflict so that's the, that's the story of this book and the ambassador is going to put some framing points on what this means diplomatically and then again we'll open up to discussion sure well
0: thank you all for coming that's the first point um, it's I'm, I'm honored that you're here in fact there are people in this audience that played a very meaningful roles throughout this crisis and if i took time to recognize all of them i think i would be done <laughs> so um uh, all courtesies uh, extended. Um, this, I want to talk about why this is an important book. Uh, it, first of all, and I'm, it, this may sound a bit trivial to you, but it's very well written. I mean, it's a page turner, and that's important because this is not some dry, acerbic, uh, when I did this, when I did that. Uh, I found myself reading this book it, it, suspensefully and I, I thought to myself, wait a minute wait a minute. how could you not know what's going to happen? <laughs> and so so but the fact is is that is that really it's a great read and it speaks very highly of Dante's skills as a writer and that's very very important to get the message across. Um, I also view this as a largely unknown story because of what Dante said earlier, which was this was right. At the middle of Operation Iraqi Freedom, it took place within that same time frame and a little thereafter. You remember when President Bush was standing on the carrier, "Mission accomplished," right? This is the time frame we're talking about. So it was eclipsed very much by what was happening elsewhere, and therefore uh, that created its own set of problems, which I'll comment on later. But it's the it's the real part of the real Blood Diamond story. It's a fascinating book. It's an inspirational story. Um, it's one that talks about how a few people on the ground left because, as he said, every, almost everybody evacuated, could actually make a difference. Um, and I am very grateful to those who stayed with me volitionally throughout this crisis so we could run our gambits to try to uh, force the peace. And uh, it's not just about, and Liberian and American alike, it's not just about American either. As uh, was said, this is about, if I can use the phrase, the internationalization of a hemorrhaging problem. Um, It's about the involvement, not just of groups of countries, but international institutions. Uh, uh, later on, the UN played a major role in the stabilization. The World Bank was involved. Uh, there were African institutions involved. Echo Mill was the lead element. The follow-on was the United Nations blue helmets. So, and there were NGOs involved, non-governmental organizations, s- central to the workout, the successful workout and stabilization of Liberia. Um, was it perfectly done? Forget it. It wasn't perfectly done. I would be the first to admit that, but synergistically enough so that we could move the equation forward in a multifaceted way uh, towards stability and a lasting peace. Um, Further, this victory uh, is not about just Liberia. For those of you who are Africanists, you know that in 2003, the epicenter of violence in West Africa was Charles Taylor's Liberia. Uh, It was exported. Uh, In fact, he was tried not really for his crimes in Liberia, but for his crimes in a neighboring country in Sierra Leone. Uh, But that isn't the only country that his fighters went into. So this was a sub-regional problem writ large, and I do believe that if Liberia, if the war had continued, I think Liberia would have disintegrated as a nation state something that we see a lot of this century, and I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, and we would have had uh, really an incubator for instability for the region and probably for terrorism, eventually. And so it's something along the lines that you see in Boko Haram today, only better resourced and probably bigger. Um, as f- insofar as the U.S. is concerned, this is the country that the U.S. had a big hand in creating. Uh, if we had actually turned our back on Liberia in its darkest hour and walked away, all Africa was watching and beyond. I don't think that Africans would have uh, taken us seriously for decades in, in many respects. Uh, we weren't just talking about scaling down the embassy, we were talking about closing it and walking away. Um, this book also offers some valuable insights uh, on how indispensable it is to have a dynamic, flexible, holistic game plan when you approach these complex situations anywhere in the world. And it's a timely piece, because this is a 21st century uh, novel. It's about how we went at it a 21st century problem. What am I talking about? I'm talking about how in the old days, you're looking at an old Cold warrior, all right? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I was in Moscow as it disintegrated. I was, I dueled with the KGB. I was a negotiator of nuclear arms in Geneva. Uh, I was a multi-la- classic multilateral diplomat at the UN. Um, I did nation to nation s- state in the 20th century uh, ad nauseam in every country you can think of. Um, but this is different, somewhat, in, in the 21st century. The nation state is fraying. Subnational uh, actors are much more important than they were. Uh, and this book speaks to that and how you uh, have to try to deal with the new realities of the 21st century. Um, For example, in, in Liberia, I will tell you that what was on my mind as chief of mission. Well, there, there I had to deal basically with three simultaneous strategies. The first one, as Dante has correctly identified, is what do you do about Charles Taylor? I mean, look, I talked to Charles Taylor, and I really believe that even he knew that the war would never end as long as he remained head of state. And did not step down and leave Liberia. Why? Because this war was very personal. Many of the rebels that I talked to and let leaders were personally after Taylor. It wasn't just against the government of Liberia. It was against Charles Taylor. So that was problem number one. The second uh, uh, piece of this had to do with how do you deal with two ethnically different, distinct, and competitive rebel armies. Um, most dramatically, I guess, would be going over, as Dante said, to talk to the head of the largest rebel army, known as the Lurd, which was mostly composed, composed of Muslims. And um, it's very difficult uh, commanding General, General Cobra, a real stone killer, frankly and he was bent on revenge, first and foremost. When I talked to him, this was a fellow who wanted payback. Uh, th- this was a siege of Monrovia, largely undertaken by the Lord, and he wanted a 14th century conclusion to it, the sacking of Monrovia and payback for things that had actually mostly happened to his people in another country, in Guinea, um, and so his objective was to take and sack Monrovia, to uh, to, to to pay back in blood uh, for what had happened, and personally, I think he had aspirations to seize power himself if he saw a way to do so. Um, interestingly. This is another 21st century situation. I don't remember any time in my entire career uh, in the 20th century when the military chain of command completely broke away. This man was not taking orders, as he told me dramatically, from Seko Kone, who was the head of the political uh, lured movement. And so he was off on his own. He was rogue, and frankly, that's the kind of twenty-first century problem that we face more and more—that you didn't see in the old days—and that you have to deal with these types of fragmentation of who's sitting across the table, or as Nelson Mandela used to tell me, we were talking about Burundi, and and you know we had a heck of a time figuring out whether we had a critical mass across the table. There were so many parties, uh, Princeton, you know this uh, better than I do, but it was it was a it was, it was very difficult to deal with the fragmentation problem. Um, so, um, and the last piece, the last strategy that I had to worry worry about and, and, and create a, a local ground strategy for simultaneously was how do I deal with Washington? I'm being very blunt and open about this because I have to be. Um, how, what do I do? Because, frankly, the plurality of... Policymakers in Washington at the time very clearly was sending a me- message to me that you're finished, that the embassy is, and it was mostly coming from the Defense Department, but not entirely, and um, and and from Donald Rumsfeld, and so uh, so this was a very very hotly debated issue, but basically policymakers in Washington were mesmerized on Iraq and. All the other embassies had closed. So what was I going to do locally to m- make sure that it wasn't game over? Those were the strategies, the three strategies, that I had to uh, work on with the help of many others, including the gentleman sitting to my right. Um, and, um, and as a matter of fact, in my afterlife as ambassador, after I left the Foreign Service, I've spent the last decade sort of distilling uh, lessons learned from Liberia and dealing with this type of 21st century complex uh, problem and other situations to try to figure out what sorts of things we need to consider in the future in these situations, so to so as to better uh, cope with them and to try to to deal with them. So that's been a very interesting career, and let me tell you, business is good. Um, <laughs> uh, let me close on a on a personal note. Which is because it's going to come up, and I might as well deal with it now, which is the question that I'm asked most frequently, which is, you know ambassador or John or whatever you kept the embassy open, why did you feel you you were justified to to take that kind of risk and i and, and it was risky, it was a dangerous situation now albeit that we we, we did the very best we could to to mitigate the risks at hand in various ways. But I knew I was taking risks with the lives of my people, American Liberian. We had casualties. We lost some of our Liberian staff. Very sadly, we had Marines wounded. Uh, Why did I do that? Why didn't I just close? And of course, why did we do this type of daring frontline diplomacy, crossing through no man's land, or as Colin Powell uh, put it to me later. You know, he said, "Well, John, that was great, but I wouldn't try it again." Uh, and uh, why, why? Why did I feel I could do that? It was a hard thing. It was one of the hardest things I ever did in my life, w- was to make the decision. And that I reviewed that decision, um, uh, not just daily, but but sometimes hourly. Uh, we were taking incoming. We were suffering casualties, the situation was very fluid, we could all be killed. Um, But one reason I did it was, and I think this is very important for 21st century complex situations, was that I was at the rock face of diplomacy. I was there. One of the reasons I came back from Ghana from negotiations and I left my very talented uh, friend, Michael Ariadne in charge in, in Ghana, at the time to continue to work on the Comprehensive Peace Agreement, but, uh, but I had talked to General Abubakar, who was the mediator for the peace process, very talented b- fellow, worked very hard at it, uh, and we agreed that we were, we were just not gonna achieve anything because the ceasefire wouldn't hold, and without the ceasefire, the whole Comprehensive Peace Accord would turn into nothing. Um, so that's why I left and came back. On the ground, you could see like climbing a cliff, handholds, places you could go, things you could never see by reading a cable. Not that people read cables any day in the world of tweets now, but I mean, in the old days, we used to read cables and and try to analyze those things. Now it's just a stream of thought. More little criticism there, but never, but but the fact is that 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 the fact is is that you can see ways forward that aren't that are hard to see when you're not working on the rock face of diplomacy. That's the first explanation I would give. The second one is that I had a superb and very talented staff uh, and and colleagues working out there um, and I had great confidence in them and the fact is is that you will read all the time about how the US government can never unify in its actions how there can never be whole of government. How many times have you read, there can never be a whole of government, we've never achieved it? Wrong. I'm here to tell you that locally, we achieved it. There was no division between the military and the civilians out there. There was no no agency positions. Uh, Perhaps it was because of the great exogenous pressure. To be sure, that was a factor. Um, But um, we were all in. And there was only us. And what I would tell you is also that everybody out there knew that this would be a defining moment of their individual lives. They understood that. And, and when they did, and, and knowing that, I found out it's really amazing what you can ask people to do. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Ambassador Bellini and Dante. Um, let me exercise the, uh, the host's prerogative and just throw sure. two questions out, and then open it up uh, uh, to, the fl- uh, to the floor. I think Dante uh, toward the end of the book, and I uh, the advantage over our audience of having read the, the book. I, I think it was either the epilogue or the second last chapter. But you, you made the point very clear: peace was achieved because the Liberians wanted it, and it was the Liberians who who achieved that. And I think that's a very important point that you made there, but if you and or Asraf or both of you could tease that out a little bit, because in many of the complex situations we find ourselves in, not just in Africa but elsewhere, often what is absent is exactly that the individuals, many of whose names are recorded thanks to you and others, but there isn't a will. Yes, Taylor had to be moved aside, and others, but there was a, you know, there were people. Where, what do you, you know, the importance of that insight about local ownership.
2: Yeah. Well, I think, uh, I think there's two things, right? I mean, uh, uh, it's very hard for the international community uh, to support uh, the stopping of a war unless uh, folks themselves want to stop shooting. Uh, in Liberia, what had happened was uh, the vast majority of the population was absolutely fed up with, the conflict. Uh, they were victims of the conflict. They had been enduring uh, suffering off and on uh, for you know 23 years, if you go all the way back to the coup in 1980. Um, so people understood the depths and depravities of the war and the violence. And so the, the call and pressure from the Liberian people was such that I think all sides uh, felt that. But unfortunately, in a world of guns, and a world where a few can, can you know, do significant harm to the vast majority. Um, it also takes uh, finding some leverage and, and understanding uh, the combatant parties. So it, it can't be just the will of the people themselves. Uh, they do need some help to put pressure. Because, look, uh, combatant parties are sustained by access to international markets. They're sustained by, they have to get money for guns. They have to get money to pay uh, their, their soldiers. Um, so there is a role uh, in, in a deeply divided country uh, for international assistance. And the international, consistent, the, the international assistance, the first thing is convening authority. You know, it's, it's finding a, a neutral ground where combatants can talk along with other voices. So the Liberian peace process, which again, you know, we're on the ground. There's others in this room that were uh, you know, at, the, at the peace talks and, and can speak more to that. But it takes uh, that convening authority to say, OK, well, let's, let's go to a neutral place and see if we can find a way to talk. And, and the second thing is, is what you have to do when you're on the ground is speak to everybody's particular equities. Uh, it was very clear that uh, the Lord Rebels and Modell, which was coming up from the South, neither one had a governing mandate. So, if they had somehow achieved the executive mansion, gotten control of the of the country, you know, they weren't going to be accepted by the, the the majority of the population. And, and Taylor's rump government still had supporters; they still had uh, capacity to fight. But again, uh, their mandate had been discredited uh, by years of you know human rights abuse and and lack of support. And so. You you know, you're trying to find the leverage with those armed combatants to say, you know, really you don't have nobody has the support of the people. So let's find a way to stop the shooting and go there. At the end of the day, it does take uh, the people in the negotiating room to finally say, yeah. And it takes the people on the ground with the guns to voluntarily put those guns aside. Uh, And I would I would argue that. Uh, there are inflection points. This was one of them. Liberia in the 90s, when it was trying to dig its way out of factional fighting, had 13 failed peace agreements. So the opportunities can come, but if they're not consolidated, you know, if there's a, a sense of fatigue, a sense of urgency within the society, you have to take that window. Uh, if you don't, then all bets are off and, and, it, and it can devolve. But what happens is, uh, it's, I would say again, the overall pressure and sentiment of the liberian people does interact psychologically within the fighters who don't want to spend their entire lives uh attacking their own people and uh and if that can be heard and put through in the proper forum you have the opportunity to to start to move towards stability
0: well it was a very chaotic dangerous situation um And uh, we certainly drew upon all elements of the populace that we could to try to solve it. I I would say that um, what we did at the embassy and more broadly within the international community was try to set an agenda. And we needed an agenda and we also needed tempo in the agenda. This is something that's not talked about nearly enough. Uh, you've got to be able to set out the agenda and show the pathway forward and try to get as many parties to follow that agenda as possible, especially given all the, the differences that Dante has just spoken about. And that's, that's what we did. I mean, we, um, uh, I mean, it's a little bit like playing tennis, you know, these peace negotiations. If you wait for the shot to come over the net, uh, what are your chances are, if you played defense and, chen- and tennis, of winning the match. Uh, not very good. And so we, we went out there. We, we talked to all the parties. But basically, we, we tried to show them the way forward. And we also tried one other thing, or to do one other thing. And that is to simplify the problem. And one of the axioms, in my mind, of dealing with complex situations in the 21st century, and I don't just mean Liberia is if you've got a complex situation, try to make it less complex, uh, if you can. Uh, what am I talking about? Well, uh, I said the first thing we had to do was to worry about uh, uh, the exit of Charles Taylor because there wasn't gonna be any peace until Charles Taylor was gone. So, you know, he left, and like the old game pickup sticks, you know, the pile, without moving the pile, it got a little bit simpler. And then we looked at the situation and said, if we can just separate the warring three armies and, and I can get Echomel to see itself as a non-combatant peacekeeping force instead of a combatant force, which is the way they came in originally, that will simplify the process even further. So we'll separate the armies, we'll put in a force in between Taylor's people and then, and, and, and it'll become simpler. Down the road, beyond the scope of this book, another thing we did, disarmament, DDR. Uh, We took as many guns away from these people as we could. Uh, We tried to give them other things to look forward to. We even created a Civilian Conservation Corps modeled on Franklin Delano Roosevelt's and I'm dating myself here, obviously, uh, program of the 1930s, so we employed uh, many of the fighters to go out and build the bridges they'd just blown up, patch the roads they just they just trashed, um, you know, grow crops, uh, uh, rebuild medical uh, clinics that they'd just burnt down, to give them a way forward, but also to to give them something else to do besides besides go back to war. I mean, you know, you could set your watch. by by that operation in Iraq before there would be an insurrection because there was no adequate post, uh, there was no uh, 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 strategy of a uh, post-conflict workout. And so I was determined that we were going to have these things and to set the tempo and the agenda and that they were going to follow it.
1: Follow, follow with one other question, then we'll open up. And uh, Dante tells the story in, in the book. Uh, I'm sure, I commend, but directly, uh, you, Ambassador Blaine was how did you you know, you know talk a, uh, about how you kept this problem? You Dante mentioned earlier that in fact the plurality of opinion was, or at least back here at home, was <laughs> moving against. Uh, in fact, wanted you out of there, shut down the mission, and. Uh, uh, board it up and uh evac do a do a of the embassy essentially uh but talk a little about how you kept that now we kept open, but kind of changed the the dynamics because oftentimes let 's i think everyone here in the room knows oftentimes the the instinct back in Washington to uh alarms from the field is make the problem go away, or better yet you go away yourself and uh and so talk us through a little bit of that.
0: Well, this is the, mo- this is, uh, this is the third strat- part of the strategy, but of course it was not the least important by a long shot. Um, first of all, I had the backing and, uh, and strength of Colin Powell. And uh, he and I talked on the phone frequently. And uh, he was the person who carried the argumentation to keep the embassy open to the Oval Office. Um, and so without his support, uh, it, I think we, it would have been curtains. Um, I should say that right up front. Uh, the other ways that we, that we influenced that equation was the media. And I guess I must confess at this point that I sought out the international media Uh, intentionally to keep the pilot lit on Liberia during all this mesmerized Iraq, we wanna celebrate in the end zone phenomena that was going on. Uh, That's where the attention was supposed to be, on Iraq. But I went out, I got a hold of people like Brett Sattler and CNN and others, and I intentionally, frankly without being asked, talked to them so and I talked to them mostly about the humanitarian situation and there and as Dante said, there was a desperate humanitarian situation unfolding there. I did not want it covered up. I did not want it swept under the rug for the sake of uh, of celebrating in the end zone on Iraq and so and so we had those CNN and those print media and those in those radio interviews, and I was frankly called on it uh, as as being a little much. The reason was, and, and and also I had other allies like Chet Crocker and others back here, Princeton Lyman, others who wrote in, wrote about the fact that there was a way forward. Don't do this, and and uh, we. Uh, We had friends back here who could keep the pressure to keep that door from slamming shut and the embassy totally closed. Um, So those are some of the ways that I I worked that equation. I mean, actually, the, the argumentation was the shrillest in the entire Bush administration. Not Iraq, but in the Oval Office. It came before the President of the United States three times. Secretary Rumsfeld, Secretary Powell, uh, Bellicose argumentation, um, and uh, in the last analysis, uh, President Bush, who I think had heard quite enough at that point, uh, just threw up his hands and said, "You know, that's that's enough. <laughs> that's enough." And he said, "I'm going to leave it to uh, the man in the field, meaning me." And, uh, and and one interesting sort of spin from this is w- when I was uh, sworn in by Colin Powell, um, it was in on the eighth floor of this ornate State Department place where you all get sworn in. And uh, after I was sworn in, he said, I want to talk to you behind the curtains. There are these gigantic floor-to-ceiling ceiling curtains. And he said to me that... Uh, and I thought he was going to say, this is a tough one, John. And I was going to say, you know, three bags full. I can, I'll do my very best and so forth. But what he said was, don't forget that you don't work for me anymore. And I was perplexed by that. But now I understand what a wise, what, what great wisdom that really was. Because during the course of, of trying to search for peace, make the peace, stop the fighting, uh, and keep it stopped, which is a major, major part of this whole thing. Um, I had to butt heads with every agency, practically of the US government, at one time or another. Um, and, 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 uh, and I remembered what uh, Colin Powell had told me. Now I understand. <laughs>
2: mm. uh, let me just add one other critical element Throughout this, even though there were uh, tensions at the high level in the cabinet over uh, what to do about Liberia and whether we pull out, um, we wouldn't be sitting here if we didn't have a Marine Security Guard team, right? Oh, absolutely. That protected the chancery. Uh, We also had uh, 200 unarmed, unarmed contract uh, Liberian guards who never left their posts, and we lost uh, two of them to gunfire and mortars. And those Liberians helped protect the perimeter. And we also had no daylight between the ambassador, the RSO, as he said, the the country team was unified, but no daylight between the ambassador and the RSO, and the ambassador and the defense attaché's office. So uh, all of them saw the problem set as something that could be solved therefore despite all of the risks it was worth it staying it was a reason to be there he had a strategy which you need so when you know the the big argument right now in washington whenever embassies are really under under pressure is we don't stay just to stay Uh, but the ambassador had a vision and a way forward we had what we felt was the appropriate security posture And and I would just add to that, you know, we did have different units come in at different times. A SEAL team came in uh, to help as part of a a protective detail for um, an assessment team that helped with the first level of evacuations. And and those guys really uh, gave us a way through the very first attack. Uh, And then we had, eventually, we got a FAST team in. Um, That FAST team was hung up. (laughs) It was hung up. And it shouldn't have been hung up. And the security was withheld from the embassy. So that is a big problem, right? But that, that team, when that team came in, we felt that we had the security posture to do this kind of thing. Now, that's not going to be able to protect you to go through the front lines and win the trust. But what it's going to do is secure the embassy perimeter, which is, at a minimum, what you need. And then there were two other elements, which is the Liberian forces had, um, had equipment that kills people, you know, RPGs and 82 and 81 millimeter mortars that are absolutely lethal to people. But hard to storm an embassy compound with that if you're protected appropriately with, uh, with our military. The other thing uh, they didn't have was heavy armament. So you didn't have aerial bombardments. You didn't have uh, heavy, heavy munitions that you see in other conflicts like in Congo when they're, when they're blasting you know, with these uh, giant cannons. Uh, and just tearing up walls. So, you know, when our RSO is looking at the problem, when the defense attache is looking at the problem, when the ambassador is looking at it, um, those elements say, okay, this is still doable. And then the very last thing was that Charles Taylor at any point could have sent his folks over the walls, right? Because at the end of the day, uh, the US policy was really to remove Taylor. And that's the host government. So <laughs> we're trying to broker a piece with a host government where we're actually actively trying to remove the head of state. What we did was make, I think, a credible case that, and this is where diplomacy can be successful, is if you can make the case that really, at the end of the day, you're a neutral third party. And Taylor never saw us as neutral, and he never saw the ambassador as neutral. But a lot of other actors in the conflict, including people within Taylor's government, within his government. We're making calculations as, look, at the end of the day, the United States is a friend of Liberia and is not trying to take down the country, not trying to destroy the country, but actually trying to put the country uh, on, a, on a glide path forward. And therefore, you're in constant contact with the Taylor government itself. And it's trying to get those elements to say, you know what, our future may lie beyond this one individual. And in that particular case, uh, we managed to you know, never have a situation where Taylor sent his forces against us, which, again, could have changed the calculus. But given the way the elements lined up, and this is why the ambassador mentioned, it takes an hour-to-hour, sometimes minute-to-minute uh, calculation because you don't know. Uh, there were times we were fired upon very intentionally uh, by Taylor's forces. Yeah. But.
0: I just want to put one addendum, which is that um, the pattern was that... Our military came in to remove us, but once they understood what we were doing, they then played an invaluable role in trying to help us solve the equation and get to a peaceful workout. So the MU, the the Joint Task Force for Liberia, MU, was great in terms of what they did within their, the confines of their their orders uh, to help us to, press for peace in in liberia even though the pentagon was highly skeptical of what we were doing
1: thank you open up to the questions or ambassador lyman It, 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 uh, and just to repeat the question. He's for, a lawyer. Uh, <laughs> uh, just to repeat the question for video, Ambassador Lyman's question uh, on how the ICC, uh, uh, how the Special Court Sierra Leone's indictment of Charles Taylor played into uh, this particular situation.
2: Uh, I'll just give uh, one very quick framing of it. It, it really came down to, did the lives of the, or or did the dead in Sierra Leone, were they more, justice for them, was that more valuable than the lives of people in Liberia? Because the moment you tried to remove the head of state, people got executed in Liberia. And they got executed because people were, you know, Taylor's forces were scared. Uh, And so when you're looking at transnational justice, and you're trying to figure out how do you hold somebody who is currently in power to account, uh, it's very important to take that, and I know you dealt uh, a great deal with this, Ambassador Lyman, in Sudan. You know, are you are you able to advance a peace process while trying to remove uh, somebody from, you know, a, a key part of that equation? And uh, I'll just leave it. That was the calculus. the The truth was that the surprise, the element of surprise in Liberia, did not work. You know, this idea that the Ghanaians were going to be somehow shamed into rendering Taylor on the spot, uh, did not work, and it cost lives uh, in Liberia, no doubt. Uh, whether uh, you look take the long view and say, at the end, he ended up where everybody wanted him and he was held to account, uh, that's a different thing. But the actual uh, method of doing this, of surprising a peace conference, while a head of state is at a country, Uh, was for somebody who was on the ground and and saw what happened. Uh, There was absolute panic in the streets. People were running. Everybody didn't know where they were running. And uh, they were running just to run. And they knew the militia were going to come out. Militia came out. Mm -hmm. Uh, Certain members of the uh, government were taken away and executed. And that was the actual effect of what happened.
0: Yeah, I entirely agree. It was, I mean... For my I was in Ghana at the peace conference when the indictment was unsealed. I was not in I was not at the embassy in in Monrovia uh, so you have there the firsthand view of what that was like but I was very upset that uh, that this foolish step had been taken because I knew immediately it would not only uh, cause people to be executed but also endanger the the personnel in my embassy and it was done without coordination. I was promised uh, that I would be informed in advance uh, of any such step and I was not and um, uh, and, and frankly uh, 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 to do so also at the kickoff of trying to end a 14-year civil war that had cost 250,000 lives with the numbers climbing every day uh, is, is unwise as well so you know, justice is important, but justice can't be blind. In this case, you've got to have a sense of what is really going on in a in a broader sense, uh, and that certainly wasn't the case here. And uh, there certainly, as Dante has suggested, I knew immediately. Nobody had to tell me that the Canaans weren't, fla- weren't going to weren't going to arrest Charles Taylor. That was a fantasy. And, uh, and, of course, what they did was they flew them home on one of their own jets. So I hope that answers you.
3: My name is Abdullah Kamar mm-hmm. from the press union of
0: Nigeria. Wonderful. Great. It's good be You know,
3: they said, at that point in time, you were pretty much concerned and confused with what I see, especially with the, uh, the indictments conference, and like everyone said, uh, there was really a price. Yes. Next? but I'll take it from you. You said the U.S. was trying to grow a peace but Taylor, did you believe that the rest of us uh, we were clear, and like you said, it was U.S. policy to get him out. But what was the thought of trying to get Tibet out of a group that had already started similar groups on policies? What was the topic the there Because that was really getting all
0: confused. Uh a friend of mine who I said a friend of mine, Bishop Francis, got sick immediately after war. Bishop Francis? Bishop
3: Francis. Yes, great guy.
0: Um, that's exactly why, uh, and that, those are, that's a good question, that's exactly why I was so careful about the architecture of stabilizing the situation was to ensure that uh, the rebels, and I think that's who you're talking about, be it Lurd or Modell, would not move in, be- and, and many of them thought they would, they would move in and sack the city as you suggest, and the best 14th-century meaning of the word, uh, and take retribution on a massive scale. So that is why I was intent on getting Echo Mill permissive insertion in between the rebel armies and getting the rebels to retreat off Bushrod Island to the Po River and having the international community moving in that fashion, later the UN, to stabilize the situation, so that that scenario that you paint of the rebels moving in, I- either one, and exacting that type of retribution and, and, uh, would not take place. So uh, our, our, our planning, our strategies went way beyond just getting Charles Taylor on the plane. But I will tell you that that was absolutely necessary to stop the war. That war would have never stopped if Charles Taylor had had not left Liberia because the war was directed at him in large measure by both Modell and by by the Lord. So he had to go, but we had to do these other steps in this workout to make sure that the situation didn't dissolve into chaos and bloodshed. And it worked.
2: Just, I mean, just as a side observation, just to reinforce the point, uh, you know, is is the state, the state of Liberia, such as it was, uh, you know, weaker and less able to sort of, uh, you know, help uh, protect the people, in some sense, if the head of state is removed. So, because you were asking specifically why. Why was it necessary to remove Charles Taylor when you're facing these two threats, right? Um, but as the ambassador said, you know, uh, the war was deeply personal, directed against him in, in many ways. Uh, and also, uh, you know, he you know Taylor had been told many times by many, many different folks around the world, and certainly by Washington, look. You've got to stop the abuses against your people. You know, once he won the election, you killed my ma, you killed my pa, I'll vote for you, right? You know, once he came to power, it was, okay, it's time to put this aside. And what happened was there was a disarmament process, and yet Taylor, what did he start? The ATU. He started the SDU. He started uh, paramilitary groups. And he started, uh, you know, he still continued to fund his militia. And the militia were child soldiers and, and all manner of folks. And so, you know, the, the Liberian population, as you well know, was was under a very very abusive regime and at his direction. He he could have potentially gone in another direction. He had a lot of encouragement to try to reform, try to change. This was the this was the nature of the discussion from you know '97 to 2000 uh, before Lord really started up and reconsolidated and and. Unwilling to, to change the direction and unwilling to change from a cash and carry state, where you're taking the shipping revenue and the timber revenue and putting it in your pocket and, and and doing it by by uh, by suitcase, uh, it's a pretty easy call that uh, if we all want to see regional stability. And again, it's not just the United States. You know, it's neighboring countries. Is everybody had a stake in this? In Nigeria, regional countries. So that was why there was a lot of pressure particular to him
0: and consider that we're not just talking about Liberia consider the, the 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 horrible human rights violations that were committed in countries like Sierra Leone um, and and his role in that um, so it's not as though we're just talking about Liberia here again uh, Liberia was the epicenter of violence for the subregion of West Africa, and something had to be done about that.
1: Dave,
4: okay. uh, I just want to um, follow up on Abdulai's question because I have uh, very strong memories of this period in Nigeria, and uh, I think when he was asking, there was a strong impression that the United States was supporting Lourdes uh, in their bases in Guinea at mm-hmm. that time. Um, I don't know whether that was the case or not, so <coughs> that, but that was certainly the feeling that we had. And so that for many librarians, I mean, as bad as Taylor was, uh, as Abdullah said, Lord was much worse. I mean, there was a relative peace before uh, Lord came on, despite the abuses, you know, A.T.U. or whatever that uh, Taylor was uh, responsible for, uh, but when uh, Lord uh, started its incursion, uh, it was similar to when Taylor started his own incursion, you know, uh, 10 years earlier. The uh, toll on the civilian population was really uh, much worse than it would seem, uh, you know, the um,
2: Goal of removing Taylor from power. You want me to that? go ahead. You know, listen, I'll just say this. Uh, It's easy to, uh, you know, say the United States is facilitating and financing overthrows, right? It's easy because it's pretty hard to prove the counterfactual. Uh, In fact, uh, there's a quote in the book from uh, J.T. Richardson, the national security advisor for Taylor and you know I, I was talking to him i said look we were we were getting mortared we're 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 getting ki- you know killed and mortared uh, same as the liberian population he said to me he said well you know uh, you know how many glasses my houseboy breaks i don't pay him to break those glasses uh, but i would say this that uh you know really you know the the idea that you know, the United States is pushing, we had just overthrown Saddam. And if we wanted to remove, at that point in time, if it had been U.S. national security policy uh, to direct the, de- de- you know, to depose Charles Taylor, why wouldn't we have sent in units to do that? You know, why would you rely on some proxy army of a bunch of people to do that? And, and so this idea that, you know, we're financing some Random overthrow. I mean, the truth is, is that th- this, this, uh, you know, the Taylor administration had so destabilized Guinea. It had destabilized Sierra Leone. Uh, he was implicated in the sustainment and support of the RUF. Right? There was no shortage of people that wanted to see him gone, and to put that outside of his responsibility—that it's somehow somebody else—and even though it's bad, it was bad. You know, you, you can talk to people who were victims of the Lord attack, and they're going to give you a perspective. But you also ought to do, which we did when we did our regular human rights report, victims of people that were getting abused by the militia throughout the country the whole time that Taylor was there in power as president, as elected president. You know, he had every opportunity to stop the abuses. It didn't start. The war didn't fully restart for three years, and yet people that were in marginalized communities on, you know, in the, in the Mandingo community and in the outskirts felt that they really had no choice, that they were under abuse. Bagbo and other folks on Cote d'Ivoire said, hey, we had a civil war. Liberian fighters showed up there. Whose fighters were they? I'll tell you whose fighters they were. They were Charles Taylor's. How do I know? Because people said, oh, well, you know, uh, <laughs> We looked at, like, we looked at uh, Cote d'Ivoire as a, as a fat cow, you know? And, uh, and as it started to go sideways, uh, our fighters were, weren't getting paid, and everybody looked at that and wanted to milk the cow. So they allowed their fighters to go over and contribute to the violence and destabilization in Cote d'Ivoire. Now, do you turn around and say, oh, well, there's another U.S. conspiracy to overthrow the, the Liberian government? Again. Uh, this was not a designed plan to uh, contribute to the abuses. This was brought upon, the, the, the Liberian regime brought it upon itself. And our role as a government was to try to support the Liberian people and try to end these abuses. So that's where we, you know, that's where you can come out. So,
0: so you know, the objective was never to install LURD uh... as as a successor to charles taylor or modell for that matter the international community had in mind an interim government as per the comprehensive peace accord that would take over after the departure of taylor and in fact uh... i did everything i could to ensure that general cobra did not move into to monrovia and uh... and and, and commit heinous human rights violations. Um, I will say this, though. You're right in the respect that uh, Charles Taylor, uh, while I talked to him about this, was pretty convinced that we had somehow created the LERD, that we had armed the LERD, that we were the sole trainer of the LERD. I tried to deflate that from him, I, I told him that what simply wasn't true. We weren't the creators of the Lord. and I frankly told him that you were. Uh, you know that that the uh, the the things that you had done uh, uh, outside of Liberia had created all, all these oppositions. And I don't think he took that uh, entirely on face value. I think to this day, I think he he believes that uh to be fair about it that he that the united states was the creator of the lord and certainly if you watch the videotapes of his exit he will say uh things he will point to america as 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 the ones that 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 got him out Um, but the point here really is that we were always trying to get a successor regime that wouldn't be predatory like Charles Taylor's, either outside Liberia or on his own people. And we were trying to find a successor te- regime that wouldn't be the rebels that, that would, that would, that would uh, uh, look to, uh, for revenge against the people of Monrovia and Taylor's people. What we were looking for was an interim government that would stabilize the situation and minimize human rights violations. And essentially, that's what we got. Uh, because it didn't go directly from Charles Taylor to Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. Uh, Often people forget that Judy Bryant was not a president, but he was in charge of the interim government for a long period of time while we stabilize this. People forget that we brought in 15,000 UN blue helmets to stabilize the situation. We weren't looking to punish anybody. We were looking to stabilize the situation and try to give Liberia a chance.
5: Very. <laughs> uh, I, I I have sort of two comments. Uh, one is I think you know, it's important to underline the importance of individuals. And I'm looking forward to reading your book because we all know Ambassador Blaney was critical to the success of all this. But there were others. I mean if it hadn't been for uh Abu uh, Bakht Absolutely. If it hadn't been for um General of President Bassanjo's willingness to provide the plane and provide exile comfortable exile to Charles Taylor. Uh, those were things that really kicked, you know, when, when things were in the crunch, those really the individuals really helped. But also, and I am all of this is a predecessor to saying, you know, was the question is was my, was this a unique situation, or can you apply these lessons, which I'd love to believe you could. But we also had uh, in the end, you had, you know, as you said, President Bush's decision to send our military, even if it was over the horizon initially, that convinced all of the Liberians that the US was serious. Because the other thing that was a unique situation is as opposed to, say, Syria or Somalia West, my view was basically 99.9% of Liberians had affection for the United States. There weren't sides who were anti-American. They were all had their own. Goals that they were trying to reach and support, a lot of it was uh, some of it was political and some of it was monetary. But they, you know, we, <laughs> we couldn't act as a uh, as a mediator. A mediator comfortably, I think, in that particular situation. And so you have these different aspects of the of the Liberia situation, and it um, had congressional support here.
3: They were, mm-hmm. who were pushing not. To close the embassy, and later on to
5: provide a lot of financial assistance to keep the uh, to, to help in the transition. Um, what do you, I mean? Do you how do you how do you square this this circle of, in terms of uh, whether lessons learned from Liberia can really be applied mostly?
0: Um Well, that's been my sort of profession for the last ten years, but I think the first thing you always say is that each case is unique uh, and so the answer is some of what we did in Liberia can be can be useful in other situations. Some of it is unique to Liberia, some of it isn't. Uh, but the fact is, is that we had a game plan. You were part of that game plan. We had strategies. Not perfect, uh, but we, we executed those strategies. When we went to... Uh, to, to try to work on, 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 uh, on influencing Taylor to Leave. You know it was a multi-tiered strategy. You were part of that. And so, uh, so, and we went systematically through these things to try to reach our goals and objectives. When I look around, and this is a bit gratuitous, but I'm gonna say it when I look around at the other strategies that have surfaced in the 21st century I see a lot of incomplete thinking, shall we say, to put it nicely. Um, And I see situations where there was no strategy, really. Uh, No follow-on strategy, no complementary strategy. I see linear thinking, where people only went step by step instead of uh, trying to multitask, try to think of of what is going to go on. There's an interesting passage in Dante's book, for example, where I'm sitting there with our aid director, a very fine guy, Ed Burgles, and the, the shells are coming down, and the, the, the mortar fire was raining down, the bullets were hitting the chancellery, and what are we talking about? We're talking about the post-conflict uh, 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 reconstruction period and what we gotta do. So is it applicable? Yeah. Parts of it are. I mean, we should be thinking... We should be not be thinking linear, linearly, step by step, seriatim. Complex situations are not that way. We should be thinking about tempo. We should be thinking about matching resources with strategy. We should be thinking about the architecture of the peace process and what that means. We should be thinking about sequencing. We should be thinking about whether the the, the the whole situation merits our involvement in the first place. We should be thinking about framing the problem. Need I go on? And these things were things that we did imperfectly in Liberia, but we did them. Where else did we do them?
1: Dante,
2: Yeah, I just, uh, I, I think that, um, you know, to if you're going to take on diplomatic challenges, right? It, you, you, what you see is that every situation has its own variables, but they, there are general commonalities. The ambassadors listed a few of them. I would say in in today's world, you know, what you first want is, uh, you know, from a U, let's take a strictly U.S. perspective, you you want some consensus within the U.S. government of what we're trying to do, I and mean, that's absolutely critical. We we were fighting it in Liberia. And it, it probably, uh, you know, it, it almost led, I think, to the wrong outcome. But eventually we got to a consensus. So US government, before we're deploying resources and, and trying to solve things, we really have to have a consensus. And that consensus has to go beyond the immediate action, beyond the immediate objective, to a, to a longer term strategy. The second thing is, is you, you've got to be working with as many of the, and identify the partners at the high level in diplomacy who they're going to be and, and figure out what everybody's equities are in the, in the conflict and, and try to get, again, you know, forging a rough consensus, whether it's in the Security Council or whether it's in a sub-regional organization as to, to what uh, overall you want to see. And to get that consensus, you have to lay out a sort of a positive vision where this goes. And then the other thing is you need to be present. Uh, It is very hard in certain conflicts for the U.S. to be present on the ground because we are just inevitably treated as a party to the conflict. I will tell you our job, having been in Afghanistan uh, and in eastern Afghanistan, um, co-deployed with our military, that, you know, one of the things we weren't dealing with was improvised explosive devices. So, you know, you can go through the front lines because your convoy is not going to get blown up. It doesn't mean we wouldn't have gotten hit with RPGs or other, other things, but you it's a little harder to do some of this on the ground diplomacy right now knowing exactly what you're facing. Nonetheless, you have to be present because you have to know who you're talking to these, and, and who's fighting and what their equities are. And the more that you uh, understand that, you can match up the real-time information on the ground with the broader consensus uh, above, and you have to have that matched up. Because again, this, this was a case where uh, you could have gotten whatever you got in, in Accra, but if the fighters on the ground hadn't been keyed in, hadn't viewed it as in their equities, hadn't been part of some command and control, uh, it, it would have fallen apart. By the same token, even though we brokered the, the local ceasefire, if that comprehensive peace agreement had not come into place you know within a couple weeks, uh, the rebels would have absolutely come back to disastrous consequences. So knowing, really, who you're dealing with at, at each level and who has what level of the fight is absolutely critical. And so those are the kind of lessons that you can apply. I mean, there are other examples where we've had um, uh, success or the international community has had what what is deemed to be success. And often you don't hear about them uh, because, you know they they fade from the headlines but uh this was uh one that you know sort of did stabilize after a long conflict and what we're seeing right now is that uh you know some of these conflicts are just persisting and persisting and i will add one final point if that's okay please is 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 now i got one final point. is the use of is, <laughs> the, is the use of the media right uh we now live in a fractured media world yes you know, one thing was is that the ambassador was able to effectively um, work with the media to put pressure on uh, the, particularly the Lord, but also Modell, that uh, and Washington. You know, they, had, they had reputations, they had an image that they wanted to project, and they knew that if you go through certain outlets you can do it. In today's world, organizations can bypass all that and go directly to uh, other folks and they don't feel their reputation suffers because they can control their own message. Uh, and th- that makes it a little bit harder and distinguishable from Liberia. But I-, I think the broad lesson about, you know, stitching together both the top level and the on-the-ground diplomacy by being present uh, is absolutely uh, critical. And yes, I the would master. say
0: that it's certainly not a, not a book about a few people. It, it, it's also a book that you had a piece in which is, in one case, the internationalization of the problem. Uh, there were a lot of players. Okay, we didn't do a perfect job, but, but there, were an, uh, there were a lot of different players with very different views about how to handle this, and, but we did stitch it together. So the internationalization of a hemorrhaging problem is another takeaway. Uh, another takeaway, Matt Chesson is here. Um, and one of the things that we did in Liberia that is almost unique was that we worried a lot about corruption, and how to and how to bring it under control, and how to bring the economy under control and make it less corrupt. Um, and we one of the products of that, with other with the help of of, of other uh, institutions, the World Bank, uh, the international financial institutions, was to create what is known as GMAP, uh, uh, which was the uh, the uh, government. Uh, economic management assistance program. And um, the objective was to risk control from all the stealing that was going on and put some of the money in back in the till for the use of the Liberian citizens and the recovery of the Liberian economy. Okay, does that sound so earthquake uh, new? Yeah, actually it is. Look what we did in Iraq we or, or Afghanistan. Maliki, we backed, a kleptocracy in Iraq for trillions of dollars for years. Afghanistan, how about Karzai? Um, You know, when you have a situation where, uh, where the insurgents can say to the populace that your government is stealing from you, is stealing? They're 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 skimming your salaries. They're not providing services. That's an incubator for terrorism. That's an incubator for instability. And the United States has been very slow to understand that. Well, um, you can tell who's retired here. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, on, on, on that note, we can uh, pl- uh, continue the conversation. There are refreshments and snacks outside and. Uh, please join me in thanking Ambassador Blaney for uh, discussing it, and most and most of all, uh, for congr- uh, joining me in congratulating Dante party so for Congrats. his wonderful new book.